<clears throat> Let us pray. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the grace of these is love. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. God, thank you for showing us your love by dying on the cross and sacrificing yourself for sinners like us. But let us be reminded that because you died for us, we are important in loving your eyes. Although at times we ask where you are when we are hurt and in despair, let us be reminded that you have paid the ultimate pain and suffering on the cross, and you are there with us in suffering. You're not de detached from us, looking from afar. Let us use that love to love those who are undeserving and those who have never felt your love. Through love, let us fear and obey you, and not let our fear or punishment and retribution guide us in a spiritual walk with you. Let your love heal the rage and anger that has been betrayed between Hong Kong and China. Let us pray for them to understand each other and bring an end to the violence. God, we also pray for New Hope Uptown Campus as we continually grow and learn more about ourselves and our members. As we learn to love one another, let us reflect on the meaning of the gospel and how it can impact our community and our neighborhoods. Let us understand your love and how we can be exalted on earth. We also thank you for Pastor Jason. We pray that you empower him with love and clarity in delivering your word through his mouth. We thank you for the impact group, members, and its leaders. We pray that your love will be able to break down barriers between each group members so they're able to speak freely and deeply to one another. We thank you again, Lord, for bringing us together on the Sabbath day. Let us continue to grow as a community through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning, everyone. We can all be seated, and uh, it's just great to be worshiping with all of us again uh, this morning. Um, yeah, just uh, if you don't know me, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Uptown. I would love to get to know you at a more personal level uh, during our fellowship time. Uh, I have a wife. Her name is Jeannie. Three kids. Um, and speaking of kids, at this point, we do want to dismiss all the children to be able to partake in the children's ministry program that all of these wonderful teachers and volunteers have prepared. Um, so yeah, if you've been with us in uh, at Uptown over the past couple months, you notice that we have been going through a sermon series on 1 Corinthians, and we are all the way to chapter 10, and we've been kind of doing a mini-series within 1 Corinthians of uh, pleasing people versus responding to the gospel of God. So we've been looking at that over the past two weeks. And today's sermon hopefully kind of wraps all of this up. What does it actually mean to respond to the gospel? And the title of today's sermon is Pleasing God by Responding to the Gospel. One of the best ways, actually the only way to please God is to respond to the gospel. So even as we sang earlier about how we want to please and glorify and honor God, how do you do that? One of the ways you do that is by reminding yourself of the gospel, like our brother Terry shared, reminding us 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on that cross for us, reminding each other that the spirit is currently alive, working in our hearts, and responding to that with a heart of thanksgiving. That is the best way of pleasing and glorifying God. So we're going to take a look into this. Um, I'll be honest, uh, this chapter is loaded. Um, we're probably going to skip around, so it is loaded. We probably should have broken this up to two or three sermons, but I'm going to try to streamline it. Uh, so if it's all over the place, then I'm sorry. Uh, these are not my words. These are Paul's words. Uh, the other caveat that I want to offer is, man, um, this chapter is pretty harsh. It's not uh, the last two sermons I thought were, were really good because it reminded us of the love of Jesus. 
But this chapter, Paul kind of throws down the hammer. So uh, hopefully we can brace ourselves for that. And I think that's a great segue to Q&A. So if I ruffle your feathers or if Paul ruffles your feathers, uh, please don't hesitate to ask any questions. Uh, we're not going to be able to cover every single verse, every single detail. So I'm sure there will be questions. Uh, so without further ado, let me just pray for us and then we'll jump right into the text. Uh, Father, we are just so grateful that you uh, invite us week in and week out, every single day, every hour, every second of our day, you remind us of your great love for us. And even as we sang these songs and as the picture of the cross was so prominent in every single one of the slides and what you have done 2,000 years ago, your grace is so at the center in all the lyrics that we sing. Uh, we pray that this passage, this sermon, would truly be us responding to the gospel, responding to the great love that you have given us. Uh, one, ways, one of the ways that we can respond is to have a heart of repentance. So I pray even right now, uh, I know for many of us, uh, this might be the first time we've been to church in a long while. Uh, this might be the first time we're visiting church, but I pray that you'll teach us that repentance is actually uh, your expression of kindness and love towards us. And I pray that your spirit would do his powerful work in our hearts. We thank you and we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. So like I mentioned, this sermon is kind of like a two-part, uh, three-part mini-series of the last two chapters. And we see that right off the bat because the way Paul starts 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, he says, For, for I do not want you to be unaware. So basically when he says for, he says everything that I talked about. In chapters 8 and 9, I'm going to wrap it up. I'm going to sum it up in this chapter, chapter 10. What did we talk about the last two weeks, in case you weren't here with us? In chapter 8, we talked about how Jesus Christ, he is amazing. He is so loving. He forsakes his rights. He forsakes his God-given privileges. Why? In order to be sensitive and love weak people like us. And we saw this in Philippians chapter 2 where he became flesh. He gave up his own glory in order to seek after those who are lost. Seek after people like me, people like you, prostitutes, tax collectors, really sinners. In chapter 9, we talked about how Jesus Christ, not only does he forsake his own rights, not only does he forsake his privileges in order to pursue the weak, we also saw that Jesus Christ is so passionate and zealous to win after our own hearts. He will go through any and every hoop. If it's a sin problem, if it's a willpower problem, if it's whatever the problem is, Jesus is going to lay it all down the line in order to become like us, to become like the Jew, to become like those who are weak, to become like sinners like us. We saw these, these two amazing points, the last few chapters, and hopefully it inspired us, hopefully it reminded us of just how loving, how gracious Jesus is and how powerful the gospel is. All those things are true. But Paul is saying, because I emphasize those things, I'm going to have to set the record straight in chapter 10. And he says, for I do not want you to be unaware. Yes, it's, we should be soaking in the blessings of the gospel. Yes, we should be soaking in the fact that the gospel is a free grace of God. But he says, there's a warning. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. Do you know the story of Israel, brothers, that our fathers, they were all under the cloud. And notice the word that I highlight. All of them were under the cloud. All of them passed through the sea. All of them were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. All ate the, drank the same spiritual drink. What is Paul saying? Is yes, the grace of Jesus is free. 
But let me warn you, God's people, our fathers, our ancestors, they all heard the same message. They all heard the same sermons. They all heard the same gospel. They all experienced the same miracles of God. He's talking about the history of Israel when God led the people of Israel through a pillar of cloud, through a pillar of fire. All these things they experienced. They saw the parting of the Red Sea with their very own eyes. They were baptizing to Moses. They ate the same food. They drank the same drink. There's a warning. He continues. Verse 5. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ, by the way. Nevertheless, there's a problem. With most of them, God was not pleased. These are our ancestors. These are our fathers. They experienced it all. The whole nine yards, the healings, the miracles, everything. And yet, God was not pleased with most of them. Not with some of them, with most of them. And Paul goes on. For many of them, for most of them, they were overthrown in the wilderness. All of a sudden, the tone of these three chapters, it takes a sharp turn. Paul is saying, yes, it's all about Jesus. Yes, Jesus came down for us. Yes, we should be inspired. But do you know what the problem is? Everybody hears the same gospel. But with most of the people, God is not pleased. And when he uses the word overthrown, man, this word in Greek, it is a rare word. I'm not into word studies, but this word doesn't come up at all in the New Testament except here. It only comes up once in the Old Testament. And this word overthrown is probably a very politically correct translation of it. Overthrown, another way of, of, of uh, translating this is they were slaughtered. This is a word that is typically used in warfare. When people are literally slaughtered by the sword, they typically use this word, katastronomy. And Paul is saying, God wasn't just displeased. God was pretty upset with most of the people of Israel. And when I think about here at Uptown and in this context, what does this have to do with us? Paul says, now these things took place as examples for us. Paul says, and this is what we saw in the Minor Prophets, when we look at the story of Israel, it's not just, oh, ancient history class, enlighten me. Show me what happened thousands of years ago. No, this, according to the Bible, according to Paul's words, the story of Israel is an example to us. Israel is a spiritual mirror to all of us. And when we think about how Israel, God was so patient with them. God was so loving towards Israel time after time, generation after generation, one miracle after another, one prophet after another, the whole nine yards. And yet with most of them, they fell away. We have to ask ourselves in our context, it's great that we sing these wonderful songs. It's wonderful that we are reminded of the free grace of God. Yes, of course, that's what Sunday worship is all about. But the sad reality, the sobering reality, the thing that Paul doesn't want us to be unaware of is with most of us, if we are not responding to that gospel, we are not pleasing God. And in an analogous way, the result, the consequence of that is we likewise can be overthrown by God. Sobering reality. And what I want to do in this passage, in this sermon, 
is yes, I want to preach the gospel, but one of the fundamental aspects of the gospel is do we have the appropriate response? And the best way to respond is to have a repentant heart. And Paul talks about four examples, four things in the history of Israel that Paul is saying, how do you know if you're responding to the gospel? Let me give you four examples and see if you are growing in these four ways or not. Uh, We might not be able to go through all four, so we might just only go to two or three of them. But the first one that Paul says is, he says the first thing is, how do you know if you're responding to the gospel? How do you know if you are living a life that's pleasing? First thing is do not be idolaters, as some of our fathers, as some of the Israelites were. And he quotes, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And for many of us, when we look at a quote like that, we're wondering, Paul, what are you talking about? What does it mean, idolatry? And people sat down to eat, drink, they rose up to play. And what Paul is doing, he's quoting something. He's quoting Exodus chapter 32. You guys can take notes on this if you want and read it on your own. I wholeheartedly encourage you to read Exodus chapter 32. But many of us, we might be familiar with Exodus 32, not because you grew up in the church, but even in the Ten Commandments movie. movie. Exodus 32 is a time when after God delivered the people of Israel from their slavery from Egypt, God says, you know what, Moses, I love the people of Israel. That's why I delivered them from Egypt. But I have to set down some regulations. The first thing that God does as far as regulations is he gives the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel. And he tells Israel, hey, I'm your God. If you want to please me, these are the ten ways that you can do so. And then God pulls Moses aside and says, hey, you know what? I'm going to give you more detailed instructions on how the people can really have an intimate relationship with God. So Moses goes up to a mountain. God is disclosing, revealing all the wonderful ways that the people of Israel can please God and have an intimate relationship with God. But there's a problem. In Exodus 32, the problem is the people, they become impatient. And they're wondering, man, this Moses, has has anybody heard of Moses? I know he went up to the mountain, but it's been weeks. It's been days. I I think something might have happened to Moses. And what do the people of Israel do in Exodus 32? Is they say, we need a way to worship God. So why don't we get all the gold jewelry across all the people? Let's put it in a burning furnace. And out of this furnace, let's create a golden calf. And even though we don't really know how to worship God, because we don't know where this Moses guy is, maybe we can at least worship God through this golden calf. And for some of us who are familiar with the Ten Commandments, you know this is a direct violation of commandment number one and two. Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. Thou shalt not engraven any type of form to worship me. And the people of Israel, they are violating this command. What basically they're doing, this first example that, that Paul is citing, is the people of Israel, they were guilty of committing the sin of idolatry. They're worshiping this golden calf. And not only this golden calf, they will worship so many other things, things that they would make with their own hands. They will look at that and say, this is God. I'm going to place my trust in this. I'm going to place all my hopes in this man-made creation. And for some of us, we're wondering, okay, golden calf? I don't even know what that looks like. How is that relevant in my life? Idolatry? I'm not an idol worshiper. I'm not stupid enough to be worshiping something that is man-made. 
But one of the things that you'll notice if you look at the Bible, the way it describes idolatry, is idols are not physical things. Idols, really, is anything that you place your trust and your hope in. Anything that you depend or rely upon that is not God, that is considered idol. When we think about that definition, if you really think about that introspectively, you realize, wait a minute, if that is a definition of idolatry, am I idolizing financial success? Because I'll be honest, man, I am hitting the books. I am trying my hardest to get that 4-0. Why? In order to get that competitive internship. Why? In order to secure that job. Why? So that I can ultimately have financial security. If I don't have financial security, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. If you're placing your hope in that, according to the biblical definition of idolatry, you are an idol worshiper. When we think about relationships, yes, I love relationships. Of course, I'm married. Of course, I'm a dad. Of course, these relationships are so important. But one of the really difficult things in the Christian life is the good things are typically the things that will really make us idol worshipers. Sometimes, even in our own relationships, are we placing our ultimate trust, our hope, in that significant other? in our kindred spirit. Or it can be something very minor or trivial. I'll be honest. Again, I'll use myself as a negative example. Uh, I guess you can say I'm a Google fanboy, like Google, like the company. I love technology. Um, you know, so I have like a software development background. So technical things really fascinate me. And Google, they released their flagship phone, the Pixel 4, uh, maybe a month ago, right? And I'll be honest, when they released that phone, uh, I, I, I probably saw every YouTube video of a review on Pixel 4. I'll be honest, okay? I'm guilty. And as I was doing this, and I was doing that, I was, I was looking at all the iPhone 11 reviews as well, because I'm, I'm just very curious, because Apple and Google, they have very different marketing strategies. And I'm just wondering for Google, as much as I love Google, I'm wondering, why are you doing why are you making these separate decisions? Because it's really backfiring. So I'm very fascinated. I'm watching all these videos. And yeah, like, am I, do I think that Google and the Pixel 4 can offer me salvation? Of course not. Absolutely not. But when you look at the way I think, the things that are dominating my thought life, what is that? That is idolatry. Point blank. Straight up. No bones about it. I am an idol worshiper. I don't know about you, but according to the biblical definition, my guess is, I don't have the gift of prophecy or whatever, my guess is all of us, we struggle with idolatry. Whether it's something as dominating as academic, vocational success, significant relationships, or if it's something as trivial as how are you spending your time? What are you thinking about before you go to sleep, when you wake up? All of us are idol worshipers. And really, as idol worshipers, we have no power. We have no power to break away from our idol-worshipping ways. We have no power left to ourselves. All of us, we are enslaved by being so consumed by things that are man-made 
And what the gospel is trying to say is instead of fixating and being so preoccupied with man-made things that will leave you empty, dry, that are trivial, that will fade away, place your eyes on Jesus, the eternal joy, the eternal love. Only he can fully satisfy and fulfill the longings of your heart. But we can't do that on our own. And one of the ways as a response to the gospel, going back to the overall topic of the sermon, is if we are truly responding to the gospel and not being like most of our forefathers who weren't pleasing to God, who were overthrown, slaughtered, killed in the wilderness, one of the ways that we need to check ourselves is in my idol worshiping, am I being more repentant? Am I being more aware that in this relationship, in my preoccupation to hit that deadline, man, my heart is not doing it for God. My heart, my longing, my trust, my ultimate affection and loyalty is not towards God. It's towards this thing that is man-made, temporal. And if so, the best way to respond to that is not to pull up your bootstraps and say, hey, I'm going to take care of this. No, repent. You can't do this on your own. I can't do this on my own. Is no, God, I am sorry. It's a gray area. I don't know if I'm crossing the boundary or not, but either way, God, I need your grace. I need you to make sure that I don't get swept up by X, Y, or Z. So that's the first thing. And, you know, at the conclusion of the sermon, I don't know how everybody feels about this, but we are going to have a time of repentance. I know all of us, those who have tasted the goodness of Jesus Christ, those who have tasted the grace of the gospel, repentance is the sweetest thing. But I know in our everyday lives, we're busy and it's hard for us to do that. So during Sunday worship, what an opportune time for all of us, brothers and sisters, to spend time in repentance. And again, it's not about condemnation. It's about us receiving the grace of Jesus. Uh, The second thing that Paul talks about that he makes note is verse 8. He says, not only do you have to watch out for idolatry, but we must not indulge in sexual immorality. Some of them did. Some of our forefathers did. Some of the people of Israel, they did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. And if you want the background story of this, this is Numbers 25. This is a story of Baal worship at Peor. And we're not going to cover this too much because sexual immorality we talked about in the 1 Corinthians chapter 6 sermon. And I want to keep this sermon kind of at a reasonable length. Um, so yeah, read up on 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Listen to the sermon. It's uh, sex, drugs, and the gospel of Jesus. And I know from conversations with some of us, you guys have been listening to that sermon very carefully. And I just want to know. I just want to keep the record straight. That sermon is not about my distaste for fast food restaurants, nor is it about my preferences for areas of fashion, okay? That sermon is about with sexual immorality. You know what's amazing? Is our sexual immorality, the ways that we fail, no matter what, God still says, I have purchased you with the blood of Jesus. No matter what, you are still the temple of God. No matter what, you might be prostituting yourself and whatever, but at the end of the day, you are united, not with that prostitute, but you are united with Jesus Christ himself because of what he has done on that cross. Such a marvelous thing that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But 
Again, for those who have heard that sermon, for those who have read that passage, if you're not growing in sexual purity, then what Paul is saying, what he is warning, again, verse 1, I don't want you to be unaware. Maybe this is an area where you are not appropriately responding to the gospel and the grace of Jesus. And if so, let me remind you, our fathers, all of them, they experienced the same things, but most of them fell away. So that's the second thing, sexual immorality. I'm not going to unpack it here. Uh, the, th- the third and fourth thing I'll kind of clump together. And he says, we must not put Christ to the test. As some of our forefathers did. And they were destroyed by serpents. <laughs> what is Paul talking about? It just sounds so random. Serpents? Where did these serpents come from? Nor grumble, as some of them did. Or... And we're destroyed by the destroyer. And again, we're wanting destroyer, serpents, Paul. What, what are you? There's a backstory to all of this. And in each one of these references, he is quoting a story in the Old Testament. And for the serpent story, that is found in Numbers 21. And in Numbers 21, it's an interesting story because again, God, He's leading the people of Israel so they can journey towards a promised land. And man, the people of Israel, they were like nomads. They didn't have swords. They were just like ragtag, just a bunch of, they looked looked like a bunch of misfits. They weren't like a super nation or anything. But even though they were a bunch of ragtag, whatever, didn't have many resources, God took care of them. Man, when they were approached by neighboring nations, people who are much stronger, much more threatening than them, guess who overcame? Guess who won that battle? People of Israel, because God fought for them. God was so faithful. As they were wandering through the desert, the people of Israel, they're thirsty. Like, oh, Moses, why did you take us away from Egypt? At least we had water. At least we had better food. What does God do? God says, oh, you're thirsty? Look at this rock. I'm going to gush out water out of this rock. God's providing water food in miraculous ways to the people of Israel. They all experienced the same thing. That's why Paul Paul earlier said they all drank the same spiritual drink. But in Numbers chapter 21, only one chapter after God provided water miraculously, guess what the people of Israel complain about? We're thirsty again. We're thirsty. Moses, what is this? Man, send us back to Egypt. I'd rather be asleep. At least I get to eat cucumbers. And they specifically specify cucumbers. At least I get to eat these. I don't, here, under your guidance, I'm just eating the same thing every single day. I don't know when I'm going to get my next cup of water. And God, at this, at this point, God, in Numbers chapter 21, man, he's like, you're taking my patience for granted. You're taking my love for granted. Do you not recognize the way I've been so faithful to you? And at this point, He sends a bunch of serpents to attack the people of Israel. Look it up yourself. I'm not making up these stories. This is what happened. And the people of Israel, how do they respond when they see the serpents? Immediately they repent. That's why I'm emphasizing we need to repent. They repent and God, in his grace, as soon as you repent, man, God responds. Okay, Moses. I'll take care of this. They've been bitten by serpents. They've been poisoned. Create a bronze serpent. Raise it up. 
If everybody looks at this bronze serpent, then boom, they're healed. The other one, being destroyed by the destroyer. We're not going to unpack this because at this point, you know, I feel like we're at storytelling time and um, I feel like these stories are getting a little repetitive. But the common theme about all these stories is God is so patient with the people of Israel. One miracle after another, pouring out his grace, pouring out his love. And the people of Israel, they have the audacity, they have the gall to say, you know what, this isn't enough. You know what, I'm not going to respond with gratitude. God inflicts something in order to discipline the people of Israel. People of Israel, they finally recognize, okay, we're in the wrong. They repent. And as soon as they repent, God is so quick to provide healing and restoration for the people of Israel. And similarly for us, what does this have to do with us? Week after week, month after month, season after season, has God not been faithful in your life? Has God not demonstrated his unwavering faithfulness, his unconditional love for you in your life? Has God not placed even his one and only son on display in humble blood pouring out profusely in order to express his love for us? And yes, these are all marvelous things, but as Paul said in the earlier verses, all of us, we drink the same drink, we hear the same stories, we see the same miracles, and yet most of them, they were not pleasing to God. For us, all of us, we have the same gracious God, but are we responding in a way that is pleasing to God? Are we growing in our awareness of, man, my life is filled with idols. I need to repent. Are we growing? And yes, I know this sexual temptation, it is so tense. But I desire purity because of what you have done on that cross. That might not guarantee success, but is that desire, is that heart, is that tension, that's real, is that growing? Or are you saying, you know what, whatever, let me just be me. In the area of putting Christ to the test, as God is placing you in seasons where he is intentionally making you depend on him more, are you constantly saying, I need another cup of water. I need another this. I need another this. Take me back to this. What are you doing? God, I question your wisdom. I question your leadership. I don't think you're present. All these different things. Or as God is leading us, are we saying, you know what, God, I, don't, I, I have no idea what's happening. Yes, I am thirsty. Yes, my mouth is parched. Yes, I don't see how all the dots are connecting, but I choose to trust in you. Forgive me for the ways that I lack trust. Those are the ways that Paul is saying, respond to the gospel. You don't have to be a heroic Christian going to mission trip after mission. No, it's within your own relationship with God. What is the posture of your heart before him? Is it one of gratitude? where you are likely to repent? Or is it one of just being presumptuous and just really suppressing and ignoring God's favor in your life? And yeah, I don't know how people in Paul's day, I don't know how they responded to this passage, to this chapter. Some of them said, some of them could have been, like, Paul, Paul, whoa there, killer. Calm down. I'm not, I'm not an idol worshiper. I'm not dabbling into this. And what does Paul say in verse 12? Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. 
Paul's saying, you think you're standing all upright? You think you're all secure? You think everything? Take heed. Or you might be the one who's being overthrown. This passage, unfortunately or fortunately, however you want to spin it, how do you respond to a passage like this? For us to be introspective and to have a moment of repentance. And again, not out of condemnation. Repentance, I can preach another sermon about this, is the love language, is how we romance God. Is as we confess, God, I need you. Man, that is music to the ears of God. That brings so much pleasure to God. There is no, no finger pointing. All of us were on the same page. Paul continues, and again, there's so much here. So hopefully, if it feels like it's all over the place, I'm just trying to follow the text. I am skipping some verses. But Paul says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And you can fill in the blanks. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from testing Christ. Flee from having a grumbling attitude, as we saw earlier. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless. Now he's talking about communion. And this is something we did just last week. The cup that we all partake in. Is it not our participation in the blood of Christ? I'm going to highlight the word participation. The bread that we break. Again, this is communion. We did this last week. Is it not our participation in the body of Christ? And the reason why he's emphasizing this and the reason why it sounds like he's being harsh, but in reality he's not. He's saying, when we take of the cup, when we take of the bread, it is us not just remembering what Jesus has done. It's part of it. We do unto remembrance of him. That's definitely true. But another aspect is what Paul is saying is participation. Participation here in the Greek word. Again, I don't like to do Greek words, but it's important, koinonia. For many of us, we're familiar with that word. We think of fellowship. We think of common bond. But in this verse, in this context, especially when you look at this with 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it is an intimate union. When we have communion, it is we are having an intimate union with God, with Jesus Christ. The blood that he shed, the bread that he is literally inside of us. You can't get more intimate than that. And going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he's saying, when we submit to the gospel and lordship of Jesus, it is as if a husband and a wife have sex together and they become one. When we submit to the gospel of Jesus, it is as if we are one with Christ. And if we are one with Christ, how can we dabble in idolatry? How can we dabble in sexual immorality? It's all about if this is the new reality, which it is if you submit and if you believe, then yes, we should. Our desire to flee away from sin should be growing because we are being fused in our relationship with Jesus. Same way with Jeannie and myself. We're married. And before, she got, before we got married, I don't know if she's ever watched a sports game ever. And I was hesitating to say it because they're doing really bad this season. But, yeah, I'm a big Eagles fan. That was my first love. I'm not really into the NFL anymore just for other reasons. Not for holy reasons, just because I don't like the commissioner. Um, but 
Eagles, man, every Sunday was like, it was like, I, I, it was idolatry, I confess. It was bad. Every Sunday, watching the Eagles game, I was so hooked on it. Um, but yeah, like Jeannie, she never really cared about Eagles, football, whatever. But once we got married, slowly but surely, she began to be interested in the Eagles. I remember there was this one time when we had a bunch of people over. We were watching the Eagles game at my house, and there was a third down. If you know anything about football, third down is the critical down. Fourth quarter, late time, crunch time. Playoff implications are at stake. And I hear the doorbell ring, and our TV's in the basement. And I'm assuming that Jeannie will go up and open the door. Because I'm, I'm a diehard, okay? I had the retro jacket all the way back from the Cunningham days. No question about it. Jeannie, you just hopped on the bandwagon just now. So just get get. get and I look over to Jeannie, and she is fixated on the game. She's glued in. And I said, Jeannie, aren't you going to get the door? And Jeannie says, no, I want to watch the game. And, I mean, at first I was pretty offended. But that is an illustration that once you're married to somebody, man, you become passionate for the things of your counterpart. And that is what Paul is saying here. So this idea of repentance is not so that we can say, oh, we are so so bad. or No, it's more confessing, God, I need more of your grace. I need more of this participation. I need more of your blood and your bread to be effective in my life. I can't do it on my own. Uh, last thing that we'll close, last point is, um, you know, it says, and that's why he says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And he says, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Paul is basically saying, if you don't respond to this, you just don't. Don't test God. Don't provoke him to jealousy. The last thing that I want us to just kind of look at, um, and again, it sounds like it's all over the place, but this is the way it's written, is Paul ends chapters 8 to 10 about people pleading, all these different things with this phrase, this verse that is really famous and popular. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And um, I mean, it sounds like this is not completely relevant to the idea of repentance that we just talked about. But what Paul is saying is all the matters of your Christian life, how to be more sensitive to those who are weak, how to become like a Jew, how to become like those under the law in order to advance the gospel. All of these things, whether I should eat at this restaurant or not, whether I should dabble into this or not, all of it has to be, how can I glorify God? Because when you truly respond to the gospel, not all of a sudden, but gradually, slowly, your mentality and your life shifts. And it's less about how can you gratify yourself and it's more about how can I glorify God? And one of the beautiful things about Christianity is how do you glorify this God? You don't have to go through a pilgrimage to Mecca. You don't have to do all these things, five prayers a day or whatever. It's not a matter of a bunch of rituals. It's not a matter of checking this list of checkboxes. It's really every little thing that you do has the potential to glorify God. I, it, I wish I could preach an entire sermon on this. But man, this radically changes the way you live. Because all of a sudden, the way you pump your gas or pump your car with gas, the way you argue with your spouse, the way you spend your free time, every little thing 
is an opportunity for you to bring pleasure to the king of the universe that you will see one day face to face. Every time that you repented, every time that you tried to shun from sexual immorality, all these things, yeah, maybe it wasn't the most successful, but God remembers. And those are opportunities for us to glorify him. 